0: Alright, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. Turn with me to John chapter 1. I'm not preaching through the traditional Christmas text of Luke 2. I preached through that this past Friday at our Christmas Eve, Eve service. I've been saying... Ever since it dawned on me that Christmas Day would fall on the Lord's Day this year, that we have a tremendous opportunity to celebrate the two greatest miracles in all of human history, the resurrection and the incarnation. We celebrate the resurrection every Lord's Day. Every Sunday when we walk into those doors, we declare to the world that Christ is risen. And in this season of year when we plan When we've shopped, when we've baked, when we gather, when we feast, when we give gifts, we're declaring that on that day 2,000 years ago in the city of David, the Savior was born, who is Christ the Lord. So this morning in the time that we have together... I want us to look past the trees, look past the gifts, the food, the gatherings, look past the shepherds, look past the angels, look past Mary and Joseph, and focus on the one that was laid in the feeding trough, the one that was laid in the manger. I want us to look at the reason for it all, and that's the title of the message this morning, the reason. So look with me at John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, these are the words of God. And skip down to verse 14 where it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let us pray. How much grace Heavenly Father. We thank you and we praise you for your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, to understand and to comprehend what you have inside of your holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. And Father, in the moments that we have together, help us to hone in on what the true meaning of this day is, what the true reason behind it is, who the true reason is. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All of Scripture, I say this very often, all of Scripture is God-breathed, as it says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. And so that goes for the four Gospels as well. They were each written under the direct inspiration of God, and each of them focuses on different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. Matthew depicts Jesus as the perfect king. Luke depicts Jesus as the perfect servant. Mark depicts Jesus as the perfect man. And here in John, we see Jesus as the perfect God. So let's look at these verses. And I want us to take away five things about the perfect Christ, about the reason, five things that make up the reason, the reason why we're here, the reason why for all of the hustle and bustle of the season, Point number one, I want to look at the first part of verse one. We see his eternality, the eternality of Christ. It says, in the beginning was the word. The first thing that we learn is that our Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. John tells us that in the beginning was the word. Jesus did not begin to exist when the heavens and the earth were made, and much less he did not begin to exist when the gospel was brought into the world. Jesus had glory with the Father before the world began, John 17 and verse 5. He was existing when matter was first created and before time began. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 that he, being Christ, is before all things. Jesus was from all eternity. John's first point is that the child born is none other than The eternal one. And John ascends beyond the beginning. And he goes past creation to the pre-existence of this eternal one. And he finds him already existing in eternity in the presence of God before anything is created. For the verse says, In the beginning. Well, that begs the question: What beginning? What beginning? I suppose John is identifying for us there the beginning in Genesis chapter one and verse one, where it says in the beginning, God created in that beginning, the only beginning we can know about because before the creation, there was no beginning, there was no time, there was no start of anything for God existed in eternal existence. So in the beginning, the only beginning that we know the beginning of God's creation was the word. In other words, what John is saying simply is that when the beginning began, the Word was already there. That is, the, that is the marvelous statement that surpasses our ability to understand it. It is It surpasses anything that we can wrap our minds around. We just accept it. And when the heavens and earth were created, the Word already existed. From all eternity, it was already there. There's an interesting personification of wisdom that could be applied in Proverbs chapter eight, beginning in verse 27. It says, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he marked out the circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became strong, when he set for the seas its boundary, so that water would not pass over his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily and I was a daily delight, rejoicing always before him. And wisdom personified in that chapter could be no better personified than the living, eternal, co-existent Word of God. And when He made everything, that Word was there, already there, the eternal one. Second, we see His equality. We see His equality. Look what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God, so first of all, John tells us that this word is eternal. Secondly, he tells us that the, in that 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 in eternity the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We can tend to have you know we can tend to have this false misconception of, about, the, about the Godhead as if there is some type of hierarchy. God the Father is not at the top and the most powerful and most important of the Trinity. And then there's Jesus, the second most important and the second most powerful. And then the afterthought third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. No, each member of the Godhead is co-equal. During the service this uh, past Friday night, We utilized uh, questions from, catechism questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I asked the congregation question five of that catechism, are there more gods than one? And the answer to that is there is but one only, the living and true God. And that question is rooted in Deuteronomy 6, 4, which says, Hear, O Lord, he, he, hear, o Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That is the Shema. Every good Orthodox Jew, as soon as their feet hit the floor in the morning, quotes that verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. We also asked and answered this question, question six. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three. Three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. That's hard for our finite human minds to understand. It's, we cannot equate it to anything on this earth. And whenever people try, whenever people try to give a human analogy, a worldly analogy to compare it to the triune nature of God, it always fails. It always fails. So the best way to understand the word being with God is face to face with God on a level of equality, not under God. You and I are under God. We are under the authority of God. Jesus, the word is not. He was on a level of equality with God, not looking up to him, not above, not looking down and not on the side, having no intimacy, but face to face with the living God. The eternal one then is in intimate, personal, equal communion with the eternal Father. And then John tells us point blank, the Word was God. Or as it's written in the Greek, God was the Word. So if we read it in the original Greek like this, this is how it would translate. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and god was the word god was the word god was the logos and so the progression here is very important first we learn that when everything was created the world was already the word was already there the word already existed and existed eternally and in that eternal existence the word was equal to god and the word was in fact god verse 2 it says the same in the beginning with God. as adds nothing new to verse 1. It just unites all the thoughts of verse 1 together. The Word was in the beginning with God, equal to God, eternal. What indeed a marvelous thought. So the Father and the Word, though two persons are joined by an ineffable union, where God, where God the Father was from all eternity, there also was the Word, even God the Son, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal, and yet one godhead indeed great as paul writes to timothy great is the mystery of godliness third verse three we see his omnipotence we see his omnipotence we see his all power his all powerful the next thing that we learn is that the lord jesus is the creator of all things he is the creator of all things look what it says all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made jesus is the creator of all things That great proof, that great proof that the word is God is that the word created. And whoever creates all that it is, all that is, that one is God. You don't have to think very long about that obvious conclusion. Whoever made everything is God. And the verification of that statement that the word was God is that everything that was made was made by the word. Everything that was made was made by the Word, and it's, it said positively, all things were made by Him. And then the negative part of that verse says, without Him was not anything made that was made. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians one, and then in Romans eleven. Colossians one, beginning in verse fifteen, who is speaking of Christ? Who is the image of the invisible God? Christ is God in the flesh, God unveiled in flesh. Who is the image of the invisible God for in him all things were created both in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created through him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together or all things consist Paul writes in Romans 11 verse 36 it says for from him and through him and to him are all things Jesus is the living Word, the eternal Word, the eternal Logos, and He created all things. He created all things for Him, for His glory, for His honor and glory alone. So John wants to introduce us, the reader, to the Word, to the force in the universe that made everything to that emanation that comes from God, that revelation from God, that manifestation that comes from God, which expresses the will of God, the mind of God, the power of God, the purpose of God, the design of God, and the plan of God. He wants us to meet the one who is omnipotent, the one who has all power. Point number four, verses four and five, we see his essence. Look what it says. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Then John says one more thing about the eternal one in verse four. He says, "In him was, in him was, well, what was in him, life. Life was in him. Obviously, if he is the creator, then in him is life. If he was the one who made everything." then life came from him. So John opens up his gospel. He opens up his Christmas story by saying the child is none other than the eternal God who made everything, who is self-possessed of life eternal, and who granted life and existence to all that is. Acts chapter 17 puts it this way. In him, being Christ, we live and move and have our being. The living word then is the living God fully expressed in darkness. Where is the darkness? Well, then you, you will notice it says in verse 4, the life was the light of men. So the life is the, the light of men. In verse 5, the light shines in darkness. You can equate it this way. The light in verse 4 and the light in verse 5. Men in verse 4 and darkness in verse 5. Darkness is the world of men. The light came into the world of men. The light came into the dark world of men. Dark because it's a sinful world. It is inhabited by demons and it is dominated by Satan. And John says this light came into darkness. And he switches from the concept of light to light because light is a purposeful and helpful analogy. Light shining in darkness illustrates light coming to deadness. Christ is life. The living word is life. He is the one who gives life. He came into the world of men. Light was manifest in darkness. Light shines forth in darkness. 21 times in John's gospel, John talks about light. So the light comes. And notice it shines in the darkness. Have you ever noticed how darkness cannot put out light no matter how small That light might be, the darkness cannot extinguish it. It cannot extinguish the smallest candle. It cannot put out the tiniest light. The blackest midnight cannot put out the smallest candle. So into the world of men, the dark world of men, came light. And it is the light of life, the living God invading human darkness. And verse 5 says, the darkness could not put it out. What a tremendous promise that darkness cannot put out the light that is Jesus Christ. It's dark out there. We talk about it all the time. We see it all the time. We hear about it. That's all we ever hear is how wicked things are. But we have this great eternal promise that no matter how dark it is, It will not conquer. It will not consume the light that is Jesus Christ. So who is this child? Who is this child that was laid in the manger? John says, first of all, he is the eternal one. Then secondly, he says he's the equal one. Next, he says he is the omnipotent one. Eternity has come into time. And we know it because the light has shined in the darkness and the darkness couldn't put it out. It's as if he wants to verify everything. John says Christ is eternal, and he says the proof is that he created everything. He's eternal, and the proof that he's e- his. The proof that He's eternal is that He created everything. He says that Jesus revealed that proof is that darkness couldn't put out the light. He is the light, and the re- and the way we know that He is the light is because the light cannot be put out. And we think about it this way, because God says in His Word, He will not leave for Himself without a witness. There will always be Christian light here in some way, shape, form, or fashion until that eastern sky splits and Christ returns to rule and reign forever. There will always be a remnant. There will always be something here to testify that Christ is God. Even when the time comes that the church is raptured out of here, these things will still be left behind. There, there will still be sermons that will still be recorded out there on the Internet. And if they scrub the Internet free with all of the, uh, everything that is God, these will still be left behind. And what does he say about his word? It will not return back to him void. It will go forth and accomplish his, his purpose. So the world knows the light came. The world knows that the light has come into the world. They can try to deny it. They, they can try to extinguish it, but they cannot do it. The world may deny it till it's blue in the face that the light came, that the light did not come, but the light did, in fact, come. And you see, and I won't read them to you, but if you, you see in verses 6 through 13, you see that the child is the promised one, the testimony of John the Baptist and all of that. And then we come to verse 14 and the final point, point number five, we see the incarnate one. We see the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look what it says. It says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth, this verse of scripture is short. It's not as short as some, but if it's short, if you measure it by words, but if we were trying to measure it by its contents, we couldn't do it. It is in fact immeasurable. And the main truth which this verse teaches is the reality that our Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth. This our Lord Jesus Christ incarnation, God being made man. All of God was in all of Christ, is in all of Christ. Christ is God veiled in human flesh. All of the nature of deity that we just discussed took on flesh and was laid in that manger. The plain meaning of these words, and the word became flesh, the plain meaning of these words is that our divine Savior really took upon Himself human nature. In order to save sinners, he really became a man like ourselves in all things and in all ways, tempted in all points like we, yet without sin. Like ourselves, he was born of a woman, though he was born in a miraculous fashion. Like ourselves, he grew from infancy to boyhood and from boyhood to become a man, both in wisdom and in stature, as it says in Luke 2.52 like ourselves he hungered and he thirsted and he ate and he drank and he slept he was weary he felt pain and he wept two of the most powerful words in all of scripture is that jesus wept you think about that when when lazarus lay in that tomb what four days dead right The deity of Christ knows that he's going to come. The the, the divine nature of Christ knows that he's going to come and he's going to call Lazarus forth and Lazarus is going to come out of that tomb and be alive. But the humanity of Christ was sorrowful because his friend, Lazarus, was dead and he wept. We see other times when Jesus wept in John's gospel when he weeps over Jerusalem. When he weeps over the fact that they had rejected him, he weeps for the Jewish people, knowing full well everything, every I had to be dotted, every T had to be crossed. Jesus was come, and he knew that that while he was on this earth, he was going to be rejected by the very people he came to save. He knows this. Yet he still wept. He wept just like you and I do. Just like you and I do at the loss of a loved one. Just did, he wept. And Jesus rejoiced. There were times when Jesus rejoiced. There was times when Jesus was moved to anger, right? He saw, his, he saw the temple being turned into a money changer's house, and he went in there and cleared house. And he also felt compassion. He felt compassion, he felt compassion numerous times toward numerous people that were not Jews. You think about the woman in the well. She was a Samaritan. She was a half-breed, right? Jews didn't speak to half-breeds, and a Jewish man certainly didn't speak to a half-breed woman, but he had compassion. He was moved with compassion, knew everything that that woman had ever done, recanted back to her, but told her that she had been forgiven. And then we think about the woman who was caught in adultery. Nobody, and no other man there had had the authority or the right to stone that woman but Christ. Could have, would have been justified in doing so. But he had mercy. He showed compassion and told her to go and sin no more. Having become flesh and then taken a body, we see places where Jesus prayed. The high priestly prayer of John 17, where Jesus pours out his heart to the Father, where he pours out his heart to, the, to his Father in the garden, where he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That human nature did not want to go through the pain. I've talked about this before. I'm perfectly perfectly fine, comfortable with the thought of dying one day. I do not fear death at all. But the transaction, how it's going to come about, I don't like to think about. That is a fearful thing. What's it going to take to get from here to there? I don't like to think about. And that's what Jesus was thinking in the garden. That's what he was feeling when he was in agony and that he didn't want to become that which he and his father and the spirit hated and that was sin but he submitted to the will of his father and said not my will but thy will be done. And finally in the same body, in the same human body that was born that night that night in Bethlehem that was laid in that animal's feeding trough, grew up and in that body he really suffered and he really shed his blood and really died and was really buried and really rose again, and really ascended up into heaven. And through all of it, he was truly God as well as truly man. We must never forget that though our Lord was God, at the same time he was man. The divine and human natures in him were never in conflict. One nature did not swallow up the other. The two natures of Christ remained perfect and distinct. The divinity of Christ was never for a moment laid aside, although it was veiled in human flesh. And the manhood of Christ during his lifetime was never for a moment unlike our very own. Though perfect God, Christ has always been perfect man from the moment of his incarnation. He who has gone into heaven and is sitting at the Father's right hand to intercede for sinners is man as well as God. So this is the reason for it all. This is the reason behind it all. The reason behind it all is Jesus. Jesus is the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason for the day. It's the reason. He is the reason for the day in His birth. He is the reason for the day in His resurrection. All of the planning, all of the shopping, all of the caroling, all of the baking, all of the gift giving, all of it is done in celebration that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All of it is done because we celebrate that God is with us. We rejoice during this time of year and all year long because the Son of God became flesh that we may walk in His footsteps and in the power of His healing, walking in in the joy of His forgiveness and bursting, full to bursting with that good news. What we celebrate today is that our God The one that spoke us into being became a man, a man so real that we could have invited him to our Christmas dinner, that we could have wished him a happy birthday, that we could have offered him hot cocoa and given him badly chosen gifts. We could have knit him a sweater and washed the dishes that he ate on. We could have offered him our best fudge and showed him our Christmas lights. And in this season, our greatest hope is that we do these things for him as we see him in those who bear his image. And whatever canvas our God has given you, on it you should be painting the absolute best description of this glory that you can. May every part of your life declare to those you love and those around you that we celebrate because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We celebrate because God is with us. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you and we praise you for your Word. We thank you and we praise you for the living Word, the eternal Word, the glorious Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. God, He is the reason for the season. He is the reason for the day. He is the reason for our celebration. He is the reason for our feasting, our gathering, our gift giving. He is the reason for it all. Everything we do, we do in celebration of that great Christmas gift who is our Christ, our Lord, and in our Master. And we thank you, our God, And we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.